Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 128 for the second half of March 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the Saga of Comet Halebop and its Fugacious Companion, Part 2. This Part 2 is going to dig a little bit more deeply into some of the people promoting the companion and the claimed phenomenon of remote viewing that was used as evidence for it. In Part 1, last episode, I introduced the idea that comets have been identified since time immemorial as harbingers of doom, enlightenment, change, or just something. Despite living in what most of us would like to think of as a scientific age, those same basic impulses and instincts continue to thrive, but they tend to take on different forms with a more sciency sounding terminology. I also talked about the claimed photographic evidence of what became the most sensational part of the mythology surrounding Comet Halebop, its phantasmagoric companion. And yes, I did ask on Facebook for some synonyms for that word. I explained how, under the most generous interpretation, any semblance of proper protocols in analyzing photographs and reporting discoveries were not followed. I also explained how, under the most damning interpretation, named or unnamed, real or fake people lied, committed fraud, and or deliberately misled their audience. In this part two, I'm going to delve more into the claims related to the Hale-Bopp companion, but from what is decidedly a non-scientific well, method or source, remote viewing. I talked about Courtney Brown and Prudence Calabrese last time, but I tried to very much do so only as it related to their photographic presentations. In this episode, I'm going to focus a lot more on what they claimed and how after that fateful night on Coast to Coast, with which I ended last episode, we were all left hanging. When I started the show, I never thought that I would be able to discuss remote viewing. It has really absolutely nothing to do with astronomy. Except for now, or, well, back then in 1996 and 1997, it did. So, an overview is in order. Remote viewing, in my own words, is the claimed quote-unquote scientific process whereby people are able to project their consciousness to view certain objects or events and sketch them, and then interpret those sketches to relate information about those objects or events. It is claimed to be scientific. In fact, it's the name, or in the name, of its modern-day practitioners, SRV, or Scientific Remote Viewing. It is also claimed to be very precise, although the exact precision is often debated. On the night of March 25, 1997, when Art Bell interviewed several of the founders of remote viewing within the United States, they claimed that you cannot do any better than 70% accuracy with remote viewing. Other people, such as the very long-time and very frequent Coast to Coast AM guest, Major Ed Dames, claim accuracies that are much higher, but lately his claims are that you can never really properly place the viewing in time. Courtney Brown has claimed that remote viewing accuracy is also much higher than 70%. At one point during the Hale-Bopp saga, he stated that his own accuracy is better than 85%. RV's adherents will emphatically tell you that it is not psychic reading, that really anyone can do it and be trained in order to do it, but you have to pay a steep monetary price that they will happily collect in order to train you. 
Some remote viewers will tell you that natural psychics make better remote viewers, while others will also tell you that they make worse remote viewers because of all the excess noise that the psychics get. They will also proudly tell you that the U.S. military paid for a remote viewing unit for many, many years, until it was finally disbanded, and also everyone who was involved with that unit in any way will also tell you that they do not think that it was ever rebuilt, even in secret. But the fact that the U.S. military paid for it for a while is proudly pointed to as evidence for its efficacy, because the U.S. military, of course, has never paid for something that didn't work. <coughs> Sorry. As near as I can tell, the protocol that many of the main remote viewers today use is claimed, more about that later, to be along the lines of the following, well, series of steps. First, a person decides on a target. Second, that person assigns the target a random number. Third, and this one is optional, the person gives the intermediate, or an intermediate, the random number. This is optional, but it does introduce one level of blinding. In other words, this intermediate person only knows the random number, doesn't know what the target is actually supposed to be. Fourth, either the original person or the intermediate then tells the remote viewer to view the target associated with that random number. So if you're using an intermediate, that means, ideally, that all the intermediate knows is the random number. And it just says, okay, view uh, 14937. And that's it. The fifth step is that the remote viewer views it, and then he or she gives the intermediate, or the original person, that information to interpret. Sometimes the remote viewer interprets the information themselves, sometimes it's the intermediate, sometimes it's the original person, especially if no intermediate is used. Again, these are sort of the, the basic steps that are generally claimed to be used. Therefore, it's also claimed that the remote viewer only knows a random number and I'm going to emphasize this a lot during this episode, and therefore, there is no extrasensory input, no feedback, no prompting, no nothing that could possibly hint at what the real target is. Therefore, anything that the remote viewer describes that is about the real original target that they're supposed to be viewing, as opposed to the random number, then it's amazing confirmation that remote viewing actually works, and the new information, or the information that the remote viewer gives, should be trusted. That's it in a nutshell, summarized by me after listening to days worth of remote viewers describing the process. And, if you don't believe me, here's Courtney Brown describing it on the original fateful night of November 14th, 1996. This person's mind extended out to that area, as we do in remote viewing, and, got, and gathered information across time and space to make sense of this thing. Now, I understand this was done under blind conditions, meaning the viewer was not told what the target was. Right. A set of random numbers that were generated from a random number table or a computer program were given to that person, and only the monitor knew that those numbers meant uh, uh, this, this anomalous object that was trailing the hail bop. Moreover, our procedures are so rigid that absolutely no cues, no suggestions are given to the viewer with regard to what the target is. The viewer's subspace mind, the soul, has instantaneous awareness, because it's omnipresent, that those numbers mean whatever the target really is. But the physical, conscious, electrochemical brain, the mind, the physical mind, has no idea what that's about. So mm -hmm. the procedure, the, the, the viewer goes through the procedures mechanically, uh, and just writes down all the information that's related to those numbers and then comes out with a complete descriptive information about this. 
Listeners of the show will know that I prefer to look into a person's claims rather than the person themselves, unless their own background is relevant to the claims, which it is in this case. Some context as to who Courtney Brown is is warranted given that he was the main driver behind the Hale-Bob companion after Truck Schrammick and Art Bell and perhaps Whitley Strieber. Courtney was then, and is now, a social scientist at Emory University, and in his field, he is known for promoting the use of non-linear mathematics in the field of social science research, which I'm all for. In fact, in my own field of planetary science, and specifically uh, crater population studies, I'm organizing a conference for late May to try to link our field with statisticians, because we're still doing things the way we were doing them in the 1970s, despite advances in computers and mathematical methods. In fact, uh, from the abstract deadline, which was a few weeks ago, actually about a week ago as I'm recording this, there were 57 abstracts submitted, so I expect the conference will be... Roughly about 75 people, which is pretty big, especially considering that I've never organized a conference before. Uh, But with that aside, and completely separate from his position at Emory, which even despite that in every interview I've ever heard, uh, the fact that he is a professor at Emory is used as an argument from authority, he runs the FAR site, as in F-A-R-S-I-G-H-T, as in you're looking far away, Institute, which is an institute that he created at the urging of his publisher in 1995, soon before his first book was published in 1996, Cosmic Voyage, a scientific discovery of extraterrestrials visiting Earth. He has since written two other remote viewing books. The first is Cosmic Explorers, Scientific Remote Viewing, Extraterrestrials, and a Message for Humankind. The second is Remote Viewing, the Science and Theory of Non-Physical Perception. He has continued to run the Farsight Institute for the last two decades. To quote a little bit from the source that no student is ever allowed to cite, quote, Brown's remote viewing findings have been dismissed by scientists such as his colleague at Emory University, Scott O. Linenfield, who has claimed that Brown has refused to subject his ideas and his claimed psychic powers to independent scientific testing on what Lillianfield describes as curious grounds. Among a variety of controversial topics, Brown has claimed to apply remote viewing to the study of multiple realities, the non-linearity of time, planetary phenomena, extraterrestrial life, UFOs, Atlantis, and even Jesus Christ. According to Michael Shermer, quote, The claims in Brown's two books are nothing short of spectacularly weird. Through his numerous SRV sessions, he claims to have spoken with Jesus and Buddha, both apparently are advanced aliens, visited other inhabited planets, time-traveled to Mars back when it was fully inhabited by ETs, intelligent ETs, and has even determined that aliens are living among us. One group in particular resides underground in New Mexico, end quote, and end quote. With that background in mind, and again, the point is just to give you a, a background into the man to put his specific claims into context, let's get to those claims. The night of November 14, 1996, was the night that Chuck Schrammick sent his photographs to art. And, while Schrammick poked in a few times during the interview, the vast majority of it, even during the first hour, was with Courtney Brown. Courtney claimed that after Art told him about the alleged object that was traveling with Hale-Bopp, he had three of his best remote viewers try to view it. Courtney spent over two minutes explaining that these viewers are all verified, they correctly view various targets, and they have a great track record, all set up to tell you to trust the results. 
He then, over the course of the next few hours, proceeded to relate, in other words, read, parts of three reports that had been sent to him by the remote viewers. All of these were almost literally fresh off the press, so he hadn't yet seen them and claimed to be reading them for the first time on air. During that time, he claimed many, many things. Among them were, first, the object is headed our way. Second, there's a galactic council, quote, sitting around a table, end quote, watching this event that may go good or bad. Third, there is an attempt by the object to communicate by subspace, and that decoding the message is part of the learning process, and that the machine will act to awaken us. Fourth, the object travels by artificial means, and it's under control, but it's also made of materials that the ETs in question borrowed, and they don't necessarily understand. During this point, he remarked that it's a, quote, big ET thing, end quote, and that the ETs know their theater. Fifth, we on Earth may think that it's a weapon, but it's not a weapon. Sixth, a whole lot of flowery New Age stuff about consciousness, galactic councils, and galactic evolution, remember the title of his first book, and the object's purpose being human awakening. Atlantis was also mentioned. There were also various oxymoronic phrases, including it's watching but being watched, and it's a new and historical discovery. In addition to these non-scientific points, many of the bits of claimed parameters for the object that I discussed last time came in these sessions all, well, strangely enough, agreeing with Chuck Schrammick, like it's larger than Earth, it's hollow, it's bright, it's emitting its own light, it's a uniform brightness, and so on and so forth. Also, throughout the entire interview, Courtney continuously made random one- or two-word editorial comments like, wow, gosh, and oh my, although not nearly as sexy or deep a voice as George K. This kind of editorial commenting, well, it created the perfect environment to give the impression that this eminent professor from Emory University was discovering this information right along with you and that you were being part of and taking part in the discovery process of a generation. Among this other information, Courtney also claimed a few factual things that were more minor, but since I won't be talking about them later, I'll just state now that they were nonetheless shown later to be factually wrong, such as the comet was starting to break up, that it's impossible for a comet to be so bright when and where it was first discovered, and predictions of ET visitations that everyone would see because it would be a flyover of thousands of ships carrying, well, mostly gray aliens that were involved in a genetic exchange program and they've chosen us to be their parents. Oh, and, and of course that whole thing about the companion object. When describing the remote viewers, here is what Courtney said. The person's mind was extended as an extremely accurate remote viewer. This remote viewer basically has never failed us with a session. This person is extremely accurate in describing physically what's going on. Eleven minutes later, exactly, at least in my version of the audio, he said, Now remember, this person, this viewer, was never told anything but a couple random numbers. And now he's immediately picking up that, there was a, that, the, that there's a guidance system for this object. Three minutes later, Some organization, and he puts down the government, uh, he's suspecting his government, has taken pictures of the object. Now remember, this person wasn't told anything but a couple random numbers, nothing else. And 35 minutes later... Remember, this person is getting this information and was not told. It was a totally blind session with no leading cues at all. The only thing that person was told was a set of random numbers that are called the target coordinates, which have no meaning at all to the conscious mind. 
And 20 minutes later. Yeah, now these remote viewers never talk to each other. They never have any idea. They're in different locations of the country. I've got you. They communicate with their monitors, in fact, over, over speakerphones so that the monitor is, monitor is listening to the session, but the remote viewer can't even look at the eyes of the monitor, so nothing is given away. And, and we are absolutely rigid with all of our controls. No hints at all. They're using just the mechanical procedures of scientific remote viewing to get this information. All right. In other words, trust us. What we're telling you is for real. In fact, once I started to count, he emphasized that this was totally blinded at least six times during that interview. I point this out because it becomes important later on, and I'm not really uh, good at indirect nor subtle kinds of foreshadowing. It was also during this interview that Courtney introduced what I talked about in part one, the concept of this mysterious astronomer who Courtney talked with, although he would later claim that he never actually talked directly with the astronomer, it was Prudence who did so. Among other things, Courtney stated, quote, When we called up uh, our, you know, the professor of astronomy at uh, one of the top ten major universities in the country, uh, he, he knew all about it, and gave us a list of other astronomers that would be willing to talk about it, and they had been observing it for a long while, and that they were totally aware that the government doesn't want us to know, doesn't want people to talk about it very much. End quote. About halfway through the interview, in my opinion, Courtney started to express a bit of an ego as well as messiah complex. He stated in no uncertain terms that he sees his role at this point as being a liaison between the ETs and the United States government. He assured Art Bell that people from all government agencies were listening to them right then. It would also be in the interview uh, two weeks later with Prudence Calabrese that Courtney continued what I interpret as an ego trip, claiming that if he was wrong, it would take the entire galaxy to have fooled him. Is it not possible that you know what they want you to know? We have gathered our data under such various conditions, mm -hmm. so extensively, using targets that are, you know, getting targets that are across the whole spectrum. We can only say that if there was an attempt to manipulate the information that we have, it would have had to have been an attempt that was orchestrated by the whole galaxy. And it cannot be that the entire galaxy is all against us. It is just not possible that everybody, everywhere, would be conspiring against this small backwater called Earth. Finally, in what will probably be the next-to-last clip in this episode, was the following exchange. Is any of this ambiguous to you? None. Absolutely zero. It's absolutely certain there is no ambiguity about it whatsoever. None. Zero. Zip. It does not exist. It is certain that this thing is not a rock. All right. So, there you have it. You might be wondering by this point why I'm belaboring Courtney Brown, his The Farsight Institute, and remote viewing. After all, wasn't it started by Chuck Schrammick? That didn't I argue that last time? I did, but while Schrammick may have provided the bicycle and Art Bell the road, it was Courtney Brown that provided the hot air for the tires and the pedaling power to get that bicycle down the road. Courtney may have really believed what he said. 
He may have really believed his remote viewers. He may have really believed there was a top 10 university astronomer slash professor who backed him up. I don't think we'll ever really know for certain. It was Courtney's remote viewing claims, though, that fanned this fire and mixed metaphor and his continued claims about photographs backing him up, photographs that were proven within 24 hours of going public to be fraudulent or a hoax. And yet, as I played in the lengthy clip last time, Courtney continued to defend his work, despite when everything seemed to be coming crashing down. His primary argument was, well, simply that the only photographs they went on were Chuck Schrammick's, and that the hoaxed photographs were only meant to be supporting evidence that he passed along. He specifically stated, quote, It doesn't have anything to do with my remote viewing, other than the fact that I got a source I thought was corroborating the stuff we'd been doing. In his near-final statement, he offered this final defense. Understand this. Whoever did this was going after our remote viewing data on the Hale-Bopp, and there's a reason. I can't stand by this photograph. I don't know why someone did... I don't know why... Really, someone sent us some, some picture that the fraudulent... Someone tried to give us disinformation and associate us with it. But the reason was they tied it to the Hale-Bopp remote viewing data. That data I will stand by. That's ours. That came out of our shop. That's good data. There was a ship out there, okay, but that and that's the data. And that was the last time he was ever on Coast to Coast AM. So, he was the victim. In other media and elsewhere, he claimed that people were bugging his phone. His contacts told him that he was in the middle of a disinformation campaign and that others were trying to discredit him. That it's the powers that be. Courtney stated, quote, Those who have attacked us have resources that extend far beyond those of any university or professor. End quote. Going back to his earlier statement, I guess that means that the entire galaxy was out to get him. But we can also start to pick apart some of his claimed good data. You'll remember about 10-15 minutes ago that I made a big point and played five different clips about Courtney emphasizing that the remote viewing data was blinded, that it was gathered while the people doing the remote viewing were blinded. I counted at least half a dozen times where he made that point and played most of them for you. The day after he was on Coast to Coast AM, on January 17th of 1997, he issued a statement. It is very lengthy, but I've put a link in the show notes to anyone who'd like to read it in full. I really only want to read three sentences, though. Quote, The targeting of this object was a consequence of a photograph taken of the object, which was released on the same day as our remote viewing sessions, by the amateur astronomer Chuck Schrammick. To target the object with our remote viewing sessions, we did not use Schrammick's photo. Rather, we used the verbal cue, quote, anomalous object near Hale-Bopp comet, parentheses, current time, end quote, end quote. So yeah, there it is. It's not blinded. The remote viewers did not have just a couple of random numbers with no leading cues at all, despite what Courtney claimed over and over on air. As far as I can tell, I think it's very safe to say Courtney Brown lied. He either lied every time he said that there were no cues and that it was just random numbers, or he lied in his official public statement afterwards when he said that they told the remote viewers to look for the, quote, anomalous object near Hale-Bopp Comet current time. Both statements cannot be true. 
if he had gone on Coast to Coast AM and said that all the information that he was going to tell Art came about when he told like-minded people as him, who also believed in UFOs and aliens and a galactic council, to remark on what they think a UFO spotted by a guy in a photo of Hale-Bopp means to them, he would probably not have gotten nearly the traction that he did. But instead, he went on Art Bell's show and said that everything was blinded, that they had no idea what they were looking at, just random numbers. And I think that's really all that I need to say on this matter. I've gotten this far without getting into detail again on Prudence Calabrese. Despite also being a remote viewer and working for Courtney during this whole thing, Courtney, in hindsight, almost always simply refers to her as his webmaster. Courtney said that the stress of the hoax being revealed caused her to go into premature labor. Arch said during Open Line's calls on January 20th of 1997, that's four days after the whole thing with Courtney, that Prudence had left the Farside Institute, although Courtney Brown and other sources later claimed that it wasn't until 1998 that she left. Regardless, despite only referring to Prudence as his webmaster and the one who had been in contact with the top 10 university astronomer, Courtney defended Prudence and tried to buffer her from the media backlash. He stated, quote, we're trying to get her out of this. She did not want to go on the Art Bell show to begin with, did not want to talk about the photos. Art Bell asked her to do it. I encouraged her. Whitley encouraged her. So she finally did it. She is not going on Art Bell again. She's already gone into premature labor over this thing. We're not going to drag her into this anymore. They would love to just bury her. End quote. And I think that it mostly worked because it's taken me this long to get back to her. But while I think that her role should not be understated nor minimized in advancing the Hale-Bopp companion story, it's her open letter, published a year later, February 9th of 1998, that really kicks down all of Courtney Brown's claims about objectivity in the matter. Here are a few excerpts. Quote, I am writing this to confess my sins, bad science and bad judgment. What I participated in over the course of a year and a half was nothing less than the manipulation of the public's mind, not by outright lying, but by selective representation, improper analysis, and overblown presentation style of remote viewing data. It does not matter that I was a student of remote viewing involved in a learning process. It does not even matter that I, in as vocal a way possible within the confines of my employment, spoke openly about the problems inherent in targeting the unverifiable and drawing conclusions from the data obtained. I failed in my moral responsibility to let the public know exactly what was occurring with the data on esoteric targets publicly presented by the Farsight Institute under the direction of Dr. Courtney Brown. The data are both flawed and incomplete. The big problem with all esoteric targets, no matter how wonderful the blind controls, no matter how benign the tasker, no matter how trained the viewer, is that you can simply not trust that what you get is actually something that truly exists when the cue references something unknown. Several months ago, I restructured the Farsight Institute website and placed a prominent disclaimer at the top of each of the session pages, stating that the sessions were not done under proper controls and that the data therein was suspect. The viewers may have had significant target contact, but we simply did not know how to characterize the data. The disclaimer also mentioned that telepathic overlay could have contributed to the data. 
I was told by Dr. Brown to replace that disclaimer with one that merely stated that we were retargeting things using more refined methods, but that we had not viewed anything contradictory to what we had presented. I felt, from a scientific standpoint, given the types of controls and checks that are standard procedure in both experimental and observational sciences, that this was misleading the public. I stated so, but as an employee, I had to follow the order. All of those esoteric special projects done at Farsight and still linked to in the Sessions section of the Farsight Institute website were done under one or more of the following less-than-optimal conditions. 1. Semi-blind sessions where the monitor knows the target and the viewer does not. All sessions where the monitor knew what the target was are flawed due to the potential and likelihood for telepathic overlay, subtle leading by the monitor, and leading by cueing from the monitor. 2. Selective presentation in all projects, where only the sessions that the analyst feels are on target are presented. Others that have opposing viewpoints or data not consistent with the analyst's interpretation of the data are discarded. In some cases, the analyst was also the viewer. 3. Leading cueing, where the tasker makes an assumption and names the unverifiable thing in the target queue. Example, quote, Martians under Santa Fe Baldy, current time, end quote, or quote, anomalous object near Hale-Bopp Comet, end quote. How can such sessions provide objective data? If the queue says Martians, then Martians the student viewers will find. Four, deep analytical overlay due to strong ideas on the part of the analyst about what should or should not be in the data. 5. Methods and procedures that changed on sometimes a daily basis without the benefit of looking at the comparative results from a selection of controlled sessions before something was implemented institute-wide. End quote. That's about a third of Prudence's statement, and there are three things that I want to tease out of it. First, she completely contradicts the claims Courtney made over and over that this was properly blinded, and she points out that if you're told to look for a pink elephant, that's all you're going to be able to look for or think about. Second, if you're an acute skeptic, you may notice what all of those steps one through five sound like, cold reading and even a bit of hot reading. The conscious or unconscious cues when something right is said, the selective presentation of results, the leading questions, and interpretation within the story that you want to hear are exactly how claimed psychics, astrologers, tarot card readers, and many others operate. They exploit the foibles of the human mind, whether purposely or not, to appear as though they are extracting information that the sitter, in the case of a claimed psychic, wants to hear and thinks that they have kept secret. Combined with what Courtney admitted in his own open letter, and it's not even cold reading, it's hot reading, because he primed the viewers with the photo he wanted them to see. And it's even hotter reading in some cases when the people who do the reading are the ones doing the whole interpretation. Third, it should be pointed out that Prudence continued to be a true believer in remote viewing. She lamented in other parts of her letter that this has tarnished the reputation of it, and that it really does work. In fact, she went on to open her own remote viewing company or institute that lasted for a few years. I've been unable to find what she'd been up to for the last uh, roughly decade, though. While she had her own institute or company, she later claimed that she correctly foresaw, or remote view, sorry, the terminology all starts to run together, uh, but she correctly saw, or 
predictive, whatever, uh, the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks in the United States. She claimed she did this while at the Farsight Institute, which prompted Courtney Brown to state publicly that he looked back through all of her viewings while she was there and he could find absolutely no record of that claimed foresight. I'm going to wrap up the main segment for this episode with the following statement by Courtney Brown. Quote, The remote viewing will be shown as correct. That much I'm sure of. The whole issue is, is our remote viewing correct? And if this photograph is a fraud, then so what? It doesn't make the remote viewing incorrect. All we have to do is wait and see what that object does next. That's it. End quote. Yes, Courtney, that's it. And the world saw that nothing happened next, that the companion was not real. That's it. Why Courtney Brown is still taken seriously in any field, but especially in remote viewing and the whole paranormal conference and radio circuit, is beyond my understanding. And yet, he's still actively interviewed for his remote viewing claims. It's what I mentioned last episode with the unsinkable rubber ducky. But, assuming that the official statement released is legit, and everything I've seen points to it being legit, then despite solid evidence of lying, at the very least, about his protocols that generated the information that led to the whole fiasco, people still take him seriously. With that in mind, part three is going to take the final step in this saga, where I will discuss the Heaven's Gate cult, their suicide, and continued claims about conspiracies and mysterious cometary companions. For this episode's segment on logical fallacies, I'm going to expand it a bit, since there were no obvious flaws in logic in the arguments specifically made during this episode's discussion, or at least that I could find other than the argument from authority, but I'm going to save that for a later episode. Instead, I want to pick up a bit from the Skeptical Toolkit. Since I've already discussed hot and cold reading, and if you're not familiar with those, I highly recommend reading up on them, I'm going to talk about the BS meter. Uh, or baloney detection meter, whatever you'd like to call it, depending upon what kind of polite or impolite company you might be in at the time. Whenever I hear about SRV or even RV, its adherents claim that everything is completely blinded. I even put that at the beginning of this episode in the basic steps on how to do it. Therefore, it really does seem kind of amazing that they produce stuff that they couldn't possibly know otherwise, which is when my BS meter goes off the scale. I had always suspected that these cases where it's claimed that the remote viewer has come up with this kind of information, well, I always kind of suspected that something else was going on. And in this case, I got confirmation, and I caught Courtney Brown in a tremendous lie. So, what does this have to do with skepticism? At issue is how much you believe of something that doesn't make sense. If you have an extraordinary claim and your BS meter starts to go up, you need to examine every bit of it, including whether direct, exact, precise statements of alleged fact really are, well, facts. And even if that checks out, you should verify and confirm every other piece of what's claimed and the process to derive what was claimed. A good real science example is when the Large Hadron Collider group claimed that they had found evidence that neutrinos travel faster than light. They tried to figure out where they may have made a mistake, questioning every bit of their analysis and every other explanation that they could think of. But 
What ended up being the issue was, well, basically, some connectors in the equipment were in all the way. Because of that tiny difference in the expected length of the connectors, the timing difference was detected, and you got the appearance of faster than light if you assumed the incorrect path length. It was simple. It was a stupid mistake, and it could happen to anyone. But it was only found because they went back through every single bit of the experiment to figure out what possibly could be different from what they had thought the setup should be. They did what you should do in real science. Try to disprove your own results and question everything. Similarly, when it is claimed that these three best-of-the-best remote viewers were given a string of random numbers and asked to view what those numbers meant, and they all came to the same result, which was uncannily kinda like the interpretation of a photograph by one man who was later shown to have just simply misidentified a star, well, any rational thinker's BS meter should have been tripped, and they should question if the claimed process was what actually happened. Unfortunately, that's rarely possible. If this hadn't been so high-profile and Courtney or Prudence hadn't written their open letters, I suspect we never really would have known. But it's a good example nonetheless, and it goes to show you that you can't just take on faith what somebody claims. It's not disrespectful to question them, regardless of what their authority may seem to be. It's not mean to inquire about every part of the process, and it's not rude to do your own analysis. It's part of rational inquiry, and if they have nothing to hide and are certain about it, then they should welcome your questions because it gives them a chance to prove what they're saying. I have a lot of feedback to get to, but because of the length and the focus of this series of three episodes, I think I'm going to hold off on them until episode 130 or 131. Among the feedback is whether the Big Bang happened, and a lot of questions about some of what Pamela Gay had said. I also have a new news item that I've been saving about Planet X, but again, that'll wait. Regarding other announcements, I'm pleased to announce that I've gotten with 2010, and the podcast is now on Stitcher. A link to that uh, portal, I guess, is on my website. If you absolutely despise iTunes and Apple, and or if you already have Stitcher, please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast through them. And be sure to rate it highly. Uh, If you're not going to be rating it highly, then I'm not quite sure why you're listening to the podcast at this point. Another announcement is a reminder that I'm going to do a bit of a tribute to Leonard Nimoy on an upcoming episode, probably in the middle of April or the beginning of May. If you'd like to send me a short, as in a few sentences piece, on what the actor or any of his characters meant to you and how they influenced you, I'll read them in an upcoming episode. Or, even better, if you'd like to record a 30-60 to second bit, you can send that as well. Or instead, I suppose. Finally, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net. You can email me, just replace that first dot with an at, podcast at sjrdesign.net. I'm also on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy. I'm on Twitter as Dr. Astro Stew. Or the podcast is on Twitter as Pseudoastro. And now I'm on Stitcher. And, yeah, I'm kind of sort of trying to be everywhere. That wraps up this topic for the 128th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. 
For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, probably on the Stitcher page for the podcast, or you can tweet me at pseudoastro. That's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, and I'm not sure why you're still listening if you didn't, go tell your friends and family and random people that you'll probably never meet in real life because you're talking to them online because it's the internet age and that's what kids these days do. 